Hey, Forge family. God bless you today. We're starting a series of podcasts on 1 Peter, which is a general letter that was sent to believers all over Asia Minor. And to start this, um, I'm going to recommend you get yourself a cup of coffee because um, this might be longer than we've had for podcasts for a while, but I want you to, to get the arc of this man's life, to hear of Peter's beginnings and how he ended his ministry. And um, to do that, you're going to need to be comfortable and set aside some time. You may have to do, do this in two different listening sessions, but um, my desire is as you come to First Peter, you understand a little bit more about who this man was and how he arrived to be a writer of letters in the New Testament. So let's begin with prayer. Lord, we ask you now to clarify in the hearts of all of us Forge people that um, some of this information is a biblical account, and some of this is ancient tradition of the church, um, other men's writings, um, and, and Lord, we, we believe that we know in part, and we by faith we take things in part, um, <clears throat> but we, we ask you for clarity now. Prepare us, Lord, to understand what you were doing in the life of Peter as you prepared him to be your servant. In Jesus' name, amen. So tradition says in A.D. 3, uh, about the same time, close to the same time that Jesus was born, a man named Simon Barjona, meaning Simon, the son of Johannes, son of John, if you will, um, this baby was born in A.D. 3 in the ancient town of Bethsaida, which was on the, on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. It's a, freshwater, a big freshwater lake. Uh, it's 13 miles long and 8 miles wide, and the Jordan River flows in one end and it flows out the other end. It's down in the bottom of the, of the Rift Valley, and the sea level, if you will, in, of the Sea of Galilee is 700 feet below sea level. Uh, and so it, it is um, surrounded by rocks, surrounded by high mountains and hills. And, and uh, it, the family, apparently, of, of, uh, John, of John, of Johannes, they were a fishing family. And we've, we are introduced to Peter as a man who is uh, in a fishing business with his brother, Andrew, and with James and John, the sons of Zebedee. He lives in Capernaum. Now, Capernaum, we know about. It's been excavated. I have stood in Capernaum. I've been in the synagogue in, in uh, Capernaum. I've walked into the region, into the little, you know, like a few, a few dozen feet away. They believe this was the house that belonged to Simon, son of Jonas, right there in, in Capernaum. <clears throat> uh, he lived in that house with his wife and his children and his mother-in-law, and um, and he had a prospering business. He was probably, at the time that Jesus was introduced to him, he's probably 28, maybe. Uh, kind of at the peak of his earning capacity and his strength. Um, very likely the lead, the lead guy on the fishing boats. Now, in 1988, some brothers were walking on a sandy shore by Tiberias, which is a, you know, it's, it's a town that's existing today in Israel on the northwest shore of Galilee. It's not far from Capernaum, but uh, they were in the middle of a drought. 
and there'd been a big storm, and these brothers were walking in the sand, and they discovered the strakes, the, the ribs of a boat sticking up through the sand, and they um, contacted the archaeological, archaeological people in Israel, and it was a mad scramble, because that the ancient wood that was in that boat would have turned to powder if, it, if the wood had dried out. And now you've got this wood that's exposed to the air after being uh, sunken, buried, if you will, buried in the muck, buried in the sand, and under the sea for centuries. And so they quickly rushed in, and they surrounded this with uh, styrofoam and with uh, polyurethane films, and they, they very carefully lifted this boat out and then resubmerged it in water to keep it absolutely stable. And then they started a seven-year process of cleaning and soaking this boat in a preservative to make sure it didn't fall apart. And what they have in a museum on the side of uh, the, today, in the, along the side of the Sea of Galilee, is a 27-foot-long boat that's seven and a half feet wide and about five feet, four and a half feet high on the at the gunnels on the sides, on the sides of the boat. It has uh, room for four sets of oars, and in uh, maybe two thirds of the way forward is a place where you can step the mast, where you can insert a mast and places to tie down a sail. This was a traditional craft that plied these waters from 100 years before Christ to 100 years after Christ, at least. And the, inside the boat were found some bits of, of pottery and, and nails. That, helps, that helped them date this, um, this boat. And then they did carbon dating, and sure enough, that boat was alive and well 2,000 years ago. It's made of cedar planks, and, um, and it had a flat bottom so that they could either row it or sail it up right up next to the shore, get on top of the fish, uh, the fish uh, shoals in, in, on the edges of, the, um, of the, the Sea of Galilee. And so we have in our, in our, uh, in our possession a boat very like the boat that Peter operated with. So one day, Andrew, Peter's brother, takes the boat, and he sets sail. He's not, he's not going to row, trust me. <laughs> fishermen, you know, fishermen don't really like to work at things. If, if the wind will take you, let the wind fly. So he sets the, the sail, and he cruises 13 miles south to the outflow of the Sea of Galilee, beaches the boat, jumps out, and scrambles down the Jordan drainage downstream to where John the Baptist is baptizing people and preaching. And it is said on that particular day, Andrew is one of the two disciples standing next to John. In John chapter 1, verse 36. And John sees Jesus walking. John the Baptist sees Jesus walking. And he says, behold, the Lamb of God. Those two men fall, turn off, turn aside, they follow Jesus and they spend the whole day with him. That night, Andrew had to tack his way back up the Sea of Galilee into the wind, if you will, because the wind comes up in the late afternoon and the evening and he would have had a, a much slower trip going home, but he gets home and the first thing he does is he goes and finds his brother and he goes to Simon and he says, we have found the Messiah. Okay, we start day two. Now you've got two guys in a boat. You've got 
Andrew and Simon, and they go back down the lake. Okay, they're going back to where Jesus was. And Andrew brings Simon to Jesus. Verse 42 says, these are the words of Jesus. Jesus looks Simon in the eye and says, You are Simon, son of Johannes. You shall be called Cephas. In Aramaic, it would have, pronounced, would have been pronounced kephas, meaning a rock or a chunk, a big chunk that had been broken off a massive ledge. Okay, it's later translated into Latin as Petrus, and we got our name Peter from Petrus. On day three, that's where you start chapter two of John, the book of John. It says, on the third day, there's a wedding in Cana. Well, Jesus has to get from the south end of the Sea of Galilee to the north end, and then he's got to walk miles to get to the city of Cana. Because Cana's on the way to Nazareth. It's four, you know, Nazareth is 40 miles away. That's where he grew up. And he, in between Capernaum and Nazareth lies Cana. And he's been invited. His mother's going to be there. And he comes and he brings Peter and Andrew, uh, Simon and Andrew, excuse me, Simon and Andrew, and Philip and Nathaniel. And he, Jesus and his disciples, the ones who are following him now, they go to the wedding. And it is at that wedding that Jesus performs his first miracle. So this is where Peter starts watching what Jesus is doing. And Jesus um, performs this power over natural things like water. And he instructs how it's to be handled. Fill those water jars, take, draw out, take to the, the head of the feast, the maitre d', and it is the finest vintage wine. Okay, Peter sees it. Peter knows what's happening. So the first one was Jesus turns water to wine right in front of him. Then Jesus heals an official son. He turns, he drives out an evil spirit. He heals Peter's mother-in-law. Remember, he reads, that he's, he's, he's ministering. He's reading the scriptures in the, in the, on the Sabbath day in the synagogue in Capernaum. And then he goes next door to Peter's house. He arrives and Peter's mother-in-law is sick with a raging fever. Now, that portion of northern Galilee was not far from very swampy areas. And there was malaria. There was, you know, that sort of uh, insect-borne disease, swamp fever. And, and it was a regular affliction that those people had to suffer with. And this woman, Peter's mother-in-law, is desperately sick. And he, Jesus steps in and heals her. That same night, that house is surrounded by the sick and the demonized and the broken. And they come and Jesus heals them all. He gets up in the morning and there's a crowd that wants to hear him. What does he do? He goes down to the water and he flags Peter over and says, here, I'm going to get in your boat. You push out a little ways. And so there's a place in, in Israel where there's this traditional site alongside the Sea of Galilee where it is said that's where Jesus stood in the boat and a natural amphitheater speaking over the water. He could make himself heard by a multitude of people. And then he finishes and he tells Peter, just step out there a little ways, you know, move out a little ways and let down your nets. Peter's response is, Lord, we've been up all night. So Peter sees his mother-in-law healed. Then he's around while all these, while all these healings are going on outside his house. Then he goes to work. He worked all night long in the fishing boat. And he says to Jesus, and we caught nothing. 
And Jesus said, let the nets down. And sure enough, there's a massive shoal of fish. There's so many they threaten to break the nets. I mean, Peter has to call for help to be able to pull those nets to shore without losing what he caught. And Peter's astounded. He, he turns to Jesus and says, depart from me. I'm, I'm, I'm a sinful man. You know, he's so caught by the fact that Jesus knows him, has power to heal, and now is able to do this miracle in his boat. Next, Jesus cleanses a man with leprosy, heals the centurion's servant, heals a paralytic, heals a man with a withered hand, raises the son of a widow in Nain. That's just up the road from Capernaum. It's in the neighborhood where Peter lives. Then they're out in a ship. They're out in a boat. Remember the storm that rises up? This is where the wind and the storms blow in from the Mediterranean, and they dive into this 700-foot hole called Sea of Galilee, and it produces massive waves and turbulence and just the sheer force of the wind. And Peter, who's a professional fisherman, boat handler, he's convinced, I'm dead. And he has to get Jesus up. They have to get him up, and Jesus stills the storm. Literally, he says, you be muzzled. Shut up, and there's peace. Jesus casts demons out of men and into a herd of pigs over in Gennesaret on the other side of the sea. He heals a woman in the crowd, Okay, the, the woman with the issue of blood. Then he goes and he raises the daughter of Jairus, who is dead. He takes Peter, James, and John, kicks out all the mourners, takes Peter in with him into this room, and says, little girl, sit up. And she's raised to life. Peter has to have eyes like dinner plates. Okay? <clears throat> Jesus, he watches while Jesus heals two blind men. He heals a man who's unable to speak. He heals an invalid at Bethesda. He feeds 5,000. Peter's the guy who kind of wanders through the crowd, kind of going, we don't have any bread, we don't have any bread, we don't have any bread. Oh, whoop, this kid, this kid has five little pitas, uh, little, like, you know, little third-size pita bread things, and two small fish, collects the boy, collects the lunch, brings it to Jesus. Okay? And with that, Jesus feeds 5,000 men, and there's 12 baskets left over after all the women and children eat as well. Okay. Jesus is returning. He's crossing the sea. Now, excuse me. He, he says, I need time alone. Excuse me. Jesus says, I need time alone. You take the boats back across the sea. And they run head on. The disciples run head on into this storm. And they've been rowing and rowing and rowing. And they're being blown backwards. They're exhausted. And here comes Jesus walking on the water and makes to pass them by. But they cry out to him, and, and he turns aside, and he comes, and then he signals to Peter, and he says, Peter, you get out of the boat, and you come here. And Peter walks on water for a ways. And then he, his fear seizes him, and he goes, and, and the Lord has to lift him out of the, out of the water. Okay? Jesus healed many of the sick who were in, in the Greek-speaking region, the other side over in Gennesaret. He heals a Gentile woman's demon-possessed daughter. He heals a deaf and dumb man. And there's a second mass feeding of 4,000. Then Jesus heals a blind man at Bethsaida. That's, that's Simon Peter's hometown. Now, he takes all the disciples. He goes up to Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi is up, up the Jordan drainage, upstream from the Sea of Galilee. And it's where a major tributary 
a tributary of, of, the, of the Jordan River rushes out of the side of a mountain. It's just a spring-fed river that pours off the backside of Mount Hermon, and the winter snow up there has, uh, and the rains, they've been percolated down through the volcanic rock, and they rush out of this place. And at Caesarea Philippi, there's a grotto, a deep uh, cave thing, ancient worship site. And Jesus is standing there in Caesarea Philippi, and he says to his disciples, who do you say that I, who do men say that I am? And they kind of go, well, some say you're Elijah, and some think you're a prophet. And and then he turns on them, he says, who do you say that I am? And it's Peter who answers. And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, right on, you got it. You're, you're going to be Cephas. You're going to be the rock. You know, you're, you're going to be this chunk that's been broken off this massive ledge. And on the, on the strength of this rock of faith, this statement of faith, this massive you know, stone wall, this huge rock. Cephas is a little rock. The truth of the gospel that Jesus is the Christ the living God, the son of the living God, that is the massive rock from which Cephas was broken off. He says, on that rock, I'm going to, bow, you know, I'm going to found my church. I'm going to found the church on the basis that I am the son of God. I am the Messiah. Okay, that's in Matthew 17. Then he's transfigured. Okay, he's transfigured. He's, he is, he's, he takes Peter, James, and John up on top of a mountain and his godness bursts out. And here's Moses, and here's Elijah, and they're in conversation. And Peter is like, whoa, that's awesome. Let's build some churches. Okay? Foot and mouth disease. Okay? This is, this is an example of Peter just not getting it. Okay? But he was there when Jesus was transfigured before him. Okay? Then they come down the mountain and they're confronted by the fact that there's a daddy down there with a son who is epileptic, perhaps, or he's, he's demonized, certainly, and they can't cast out the demon. And Jesus has to do that and, and confront the disciples and saying, oh, you weak ones in, in the faith. You're just, you're not getting this yet. Okay. Then he sends Peter to go fishing. And he says, the first fish you catch, reach in its mouth and take out the coin that's there so you can pay the picking temple tax for all of us. You know, I'm, I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep the law. I'm going to, I'm going to obey the law, but we're going to do this in a, in a kingdom way. Jesus then turns and heals a blind, mute demoniac. He heals a crippled woman. He heals a man with dropsy on the Sabbath. He heals 10 limb, 10 lepers. <clears throat> he raises Lazarus from the dead. He curses the fig tree and it withers away. Okay? And then they have the Last Supper. You know, they, they keep Passover, and, and Peter comes in, and he's, he's you know, oh, no, you're not going to wash my feet, Lord. And, and Jesus said, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part of me. So uh, Peter, you know, again, sort of bombast. Well, then in that case, do my head and my hands too. All right? Um, they go from the upper room where they have uh, the keep the, the Pesach, the, the Passover, they go out to the Garden of Gethsemane, into the olive groves, to pray. And Jesus separates himself, comes back, they're all asleep. They're all out. And he goes, come on, guys, just pray. Takes Peter, James, and John. 
pulls them aside, says, pray. He goes off and he begins to weep blood. You know, he's, he's just in anguish because he knows, I'm going to take on the sin of the world and I'm going to be separated from the Father. Comes back, they're asleep. Stands up and says, time to go, guys. And he turns and he aims right at the head of a, a snaking line of torch-bearing soldiers. He can hear them coming. He can hear the clank of weapons, the stomp of the feet, the scrape of the iron-clad sandals as they come up out of the Kidron Valley to get him. He's betrayed in front of Peter by Judas Iscariot. And there's a little brouhaha. There's a little scrum right there. Peter draws a sword. Goes, no, you're not going to take him here. And he whips around and he cuts the ear off the servant of the high priest named Malchus. And Jesus says, put up your sword. Now's not the time. You're not getting it, Peter. Peter puts away the sword, and Jesus reaches out and heals the ear, the severed ear of Malchus. Then we go through the passion and the denial by Peter. Three times he's confronted by a serving girl who's got her finger in his chest and up his nose, saying, surely you're a Galilean. Surely you are with this Jesus. And three times he goes, not me, uh-uh. And then he curses and says, get away from me, not a chance. And the, cock, the, cro the, the rooster crows, the cock crows. And Peter remembers, Jesus has said that he would deny him three times. And he leaves in utter, blown-out shame. Three days pass. And on the morning of the first day of the week, word comes to the disciples, that the tomb is empty, that Jesus is gone. He's been resurrected. John and Peter sprint out of there. They're wearing sandals. They're wearing tevas. They're wearing keens. What, 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 you know, they're running. They're, you know, they're, they're running. They're going. John gets to the outside and remembers, whoa, if I go into a tomb, I'm defiled. And it's too, this is too much for me. And he sort of kneels down outside. He gets there first. He can outrun Peter, okay? He kneels down outside. Peter doesn't even break step. He blasts right past John. He's into the tomb, and it's empty. Now, we know that night, that same night, Jesus appears in a room to all the disciples. Peter is present. Miraculous appearance. He's there, and then he's not there, okay? And for the next 40 days... Jesus begins to begin to appear to small groups and large groups, seen by 500 at one time. Peter kind of goes, oh, man. Okay. Well, that's great. I'm glad he's alive. I'm going back to Galilee to go fishing. And Peter and a bunch of the other guys from Galilee go north. And they set up a fishing expedition. And they row the boats out. They set, step the sail. They fish all night. And then this figure in the fog there at the beach says, Hey, you got any fish? You want to bring them ashore? We're going to have breakfast here. He's got a fire. He's got bread on the coals. And they haven't caught anything. Been out all night, caught nothing. Jesus is still not recognized. And he says, Oh, put, put the nets on the other side of the boat. Shift the boat around, drop the nets, and there's another astounding, miraculous catch of fish. And Peter's head snaps around, and he goes, that's 
got to be Jesus. And he whips off his robe and throws himself into the water and swims to the shore. And they have breakfast together, and, and then Jesus puts him through the three questions. Remember, Peter, do you love me? Peter goes, oh, yeah, yeah, I love you, Lord. I love you. <clears throat> then feed my lambs, tend my lambs. Peter, do you really love me? Yes, yes, Lord, I do. You know I do. Then shepherd my sheep. Peter, do you love me? And he goes, yes, Lord, I really do. Feed my sheep. And in those three questions, he is restored. And the three denials are wiped away. Jesus, you know, Peter is present you know, at the end of 40 days at the ascension of Jesus from the Mount of Olives where he rises and disappears into the clouds. And the angels say, what do you, men of Galilee, why do you stand here and stare? He's going to return in like manner. But they'd already got their instructions. They're supposed to wait until the Holy Spirit comes. And so on the 40th day, they go into the city and they wait 10 days. The 50th day is Pentecost. And you have the mighty rushing wind and the roar of tongues and, and the flames of fire. And they're in the streets speaking many languages they don't even know. And people in the crowd go, whoa, are they drunk? Woohoo! And it's only nine in the morning. And Peter stands up and takes them on and says, no, you're mistaken. These are men who represent what it was spoken of through the, uh, through the prophet Joel. And he preaches an articulate, powerful sermon. And they're cut to the heart because he says, you, you took the Son of God and you crucified him. And they go, what do we do? What do we do? And he said, you repent and you believe. And 3,000 were added that day to the church. Peter and John began to walk through Jerusalem. The healing power is released on this lame beggar who's at the temple. The shadow of Peter, as, it, as he passes through the city, heals the people who are getting in his way. They, they know if I can just get in his shadow, I will be healed. He carried that kind of anointing. He has to answer in front of the, the high priest and finally in front of the Sanhedrin. He's beaten, but he answers with direct, cogent, powerful words saying, you, you determine who, sh who should we answer to. If it's God, we're going to answer to God. If it's men, uh-uh, we're not doing that. And there's only one name given under heaven and amongst men whereby we must be saved, and that name is Jesus. 5,000 men have now been added to the church, and a persecution is about to arise. Okay, Peter has to stand and take on Ananias and Sapphira. Remember, they, they tried to sort of cheat a little bit. They, they were reporting one number and keeping money back, and, they, and they're taken out and buried as a result. And it's Peter who says, don't lie to the Holy Spirit. And it changed the whole nature of, of business dealings in the church. Then the persecution arises and, and the church spreads itself out. Okay, Philip goes to Samaria and sees many come to Jesus in the town where Jesus had visited the woman at the well, remember? And he recognizes, I'm, I'm one of the people who were set apart for waiting and serving on the 
Greek widows to make sure that they got their supply of food. And I'm a little over my head here with this revival that's going on. And he calls to Jerusalem for Peter and John to come and, and invest these people with Holy Spirit. To pour out Holy Spirit on all these new converts. Okay, in Acts chapter 9, Peter finds himself traveling on the seacoast. First he goes to Lydda and he heals Aeneas who is paralyzed. And he's been eight years in bed and he's raised from the bed, and he walks. Then he goes down, just another town down, he goes to Joppa. Okay, And he raises a woman named Dorcas from the dead. He's staying in Simon the Tanner's house in Joppa, and he has this vision of the sheet being let down, and it's filled with all kinds of unclean animals. Snakes, ostrich, alligator, pig, you name it. And the, and the voice of the Lord says, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter says, Lord, you know, I will, I've never done that. I have never let any unclean thing pass my lips. And the Lord comes right back at him and says, What God has cleansed, no longer consider it unholy. Now he's a little torqued. He doesn't know what to make of that. But there's this at the door. And there's messengers that have come from Caesarea because there's a man named Cornelius had a dream days before, and sent messengers. Because he knows a, a, a diligent, devout Jew is never going to come into his house. So he sends a couple, some Jewish messengers to have, have Peter come and sort of stand at a distance and talk to him. Peter arrives at the gate and goes right in the door. And he says, you know this shouldn't be happening. You know, we Jews don't enter Gentile homes, but the Lord has shown me what he's doing here, and he hears the dream from Cornelius, and he tells the story about his vision, and he leads that whole family to Jesus, and pours out Holy Spirit on them. Then he's got to go back to Jerusalem and defend what he did. So he goes back to the other apostles in Jerusalem and reports his vision, which had rattled their cage, and his ministry to this devout man who did not know, he wasn't a Jew and he didn't know Jesus. Now he does. Now he knows Jesus and he's filled with the Holy Spirit. That blew the socks off the council in Jerusalem that Gentiles could experience Holy Spirit just like Jews did. Then he's in, Peter is now imprisoned by Herod, but he's miraculously released by an angel. Okay, at some some time in the in the in the early future, right there, he meets face to face with Saul of Tarsus, who comes out of Damascus after his conversion on the road. But Saul doesn't meet with anybody else. He just meets with Peter, and then he goes on. He goes back to Tarsus. All right, years pass, maybe 15, 14, 12. You know, years pass. And now, it's not Saul of Tarsus anymore. It's Paul, the apostle, who comes back to Jerusalem to report to Peter and the other apostles in Jerusalem that there's great harvest amongst the Gentiles in Asia Minor, where, where Paul and Barnabas had just gone. And when he lays out, this is what I taught them, it says in Galatians chapter 2 that Peter and the other apostles extended the right hand of fellowship, of agreement 
And when they came to the immediate conclusion, what Paul, what you're teaching, obviously came from Jesus. And it's identical to what Peter is teaching the Jews. And then continuing in Galatians chapter 2, Peter decides to go up to Antioch. He hears, wow, there are good things happening in that church up there. He goes from Jerusalem to Antioch. He gets there. He's having meals with Jews and meals with Gentiles. And he's, he's having a little shrimp over here and a little kosher beef over here. And it's a great time of fellowship with the brothers. And then men come from James in Jerusalem. And it says that he was afraid. It says he was concerned that his apostleship would be challenged if he continued to sit with and eat with Gentiles. And so he withdrew. He moved to the other end of the room. And so did Barnabas. You know, the, the, the Jews moved left and the Gentiles moved right. And Paul steps into the middle and says, my brothers, this ought not to be. This is wrong. And he says, you've experienced the, the grace of God. You have, I have. And, and the answer to that is all men answer to the same name when they know Jesus Christ. They're brothers. It's at that point that the biblical record of Peter stops. The last mention of Peter is right there in Galatians chapter 2. Now from the extra biblical records, from the writings of church fathers and other people, we and these were not included in the scriptures, they're just correspondence that we know came from godly people. Okay? It says that Peter and his wife ministered right up the same track that Paul and Barnabas did, right up the middle of Asia Minor. It says Peter and his wife ended up in Corinth and were involved with the church in Corinth. It says Peter and his wife go to Rome. It says that in tradition, church tradition, and the writers say on October 13th, in the year 64, just weeks after the wild fire that destroys a big chunk of, of Rome, burnt down all these old gods' temples and things like that. Well, Nero needed a scapegoat. Couldn't, couldn't put his finger on the Jews because they were legitimate. They had a homeland. They had the rights to worship their god in their way. But the Christians, they had no homeland. And so he names the Christians as the ones who started the fire, and he has his scapegoat. And it is said that a few weeks after that fire, Peter and his wife were executed at Nero's orders in Rome. Peter's writings, well, it, part of the extra-biblical record says that when, when Peter was in Rome, preaching in Rome, a man named John Mark was his translator. Now this is the John Mark who departed from Paul's first missionary journey and went with Barnabas and Paul took the second missionary journey off with Silas. Remember this is the same John Mark that Paul says send me John Mark because he's valuable to me. He's useful to me. Okay? And it is said in the traditions of the church it was it was John Mark who was translating Peter's preaching from Aramaic into Latin. Okay, When we read the Gospel of Mark, it is filled with personal accounts of someone who walked with Jesus. John Mark wasn't a disciple. John Mark was not present. He was a young man. 
He was not present with Jesus as he walked around and ministered for those three years. He came on the scene later. But it is highly likely that Mark is the one, the amanuensis. Mark is the one who wrote down Peter's memories. It says the gospel of Mark, but it, many scholars believe it really is the gospel of Peter. And then when we get to 1st and 2nd Peter, these, these letters, the general letters that were sent off to these people that Peter had ministered to, apparently um, the Greek in 1st and 2nd Peter is excellent Greek. It is better Greek than Paul's letters. You go, uh, wait a minute, this is a, this is a humble, untutored Galilean fisherman. Okay, now we know that Paul used an amanuensis. He used a secretary. He would, he would dictate, and by Holy Spirit, Paul's words were taken down correctly. Okay, in this case, Peter, Peter introduces the fact that he is traveling with Silas or Silvanus. They're the same, same man, different treatments of the word. This man, Silas, he, he was a chief among brethren in, in, in Jerusalem. He, he was present at the Jerusalem council. He was a prophet. He, he, he was chosen as one of the two men to carry the, the orders from the Jerusalem council regarding what do we do with Gentile believers. Oh yeah, don't eat things that are strangled. Don't eat the blood. You know, worship God most high. You know, they, he, he was the one who hand carried that message up to Antioch. He accompanied Paul on the second missionary journey, as I said. He went to Philippi, went to Corinth. Remember, they were, they were beaten in Philippi and put into the jail. And then they find out the next morning that, whoa, these guys are Roman citizens? Woo! What that meant to the officials in Philippi was heads would roll. Rome would come down with heavy-handed penalty. You're dead, and there's going to be financial penalties paid by the city because they beat Roman citizens without a trial. So Silas is a Roman citizen and had the opportunity to be uh, educated and cultured far more than even Paul, perhaps, in those languages. So here we start in verse 1, 40, verse 1 of 1 Peter chapter 1. You've, you've seen this flow of this man's life, the arc of this man's life, and how this came to pass. And now verse 1 says, who is he? He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen. So Peter says, I'm writing to believers. I'm writing to Gentile Christians who've come to faith from paganism, and I'm writing to Messianic Jews who are in the same church, and they're together. And they're aliens. They're not pagans. They're, they're, they've been totally changed. They don't look like pagans. They don't smell like pagans. They don't worship anything that pagans worship. They live exemplary lives. Paul describes the Philippians as, as lights that shine in a dark sky. You know, that's what Peter's illustrating here, where he says, you guys are aliens in the midst of these people. And you've been scattered across these provinces, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. You've been, you've been taken by the hand of God, either voluntarily or involuntarily, and, and inserted into those neighborhoods, inserted into those businesses. And you are the very presence 
of God amongst those people. Remember, this is these are people that stretch from the Mediterranean Ocean to the Black Sea if you, as you travel north. All right, Ford's family. God took a rural Galilean uneducated fisherman and he encounters Jesus and names him as you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, man didn't reveal that to you, that you didn't pull that one out of your ear hole. Okay, that came from the spirit of God to reveal to you, Peter, who I am. And on that strength of that statement, in terms of who I am, that's what I'm going to found my church on. Okay, Peter follows him on around, keeps putting his foot in his mouth, but he observes the miracles. But when he's, when he's pushed up against the wall by a little serving girl, he goes, not me. Uh-uh, don't know him. Get out of my face. And he denies Jesus. And Jesus goes personally and restores this man. And then on Pentecost, he is filled with the Holy Spirit and launched into apostolic ministry. So you forge people have been picked up and brought to the Bay Area and scattered into neighborhoods and placed into jobs. And you, too, are very like the ones to whom Peter is writing. You know Jesus, but you don't live like the people around you. And then you say, but I, you know, I'm not an apostle. I'm, I, you know, I'm not, I haven't, I never saw Jesus. And remember what the scripture says? Blessed are you, Forges, okay? Blessed are you who believe, having never seen Jesus. All right, Forge. God bless you. Love you. We'll see you soon.